Tonight, the, the topic for the Dharma talk is going to be love. Nice, right? Hopefully something to, to soften and to smooth out your, your retreat a bit. And in particular, I, I want to share with you some reflections about, about love in terms of how it, it can carry us uh, beyond the sense of a limited self. And, and actually towards the end, hopefully give, give a sense of how when we engage in a practice that dissolves this, this sense of a limited self, that it leads to this quality of love. So it works both ways. And I want to make sure that we begin with some kind of definition, because if you noticed, this is such um, a well-used word in so many different ways. And I want to make sure that we're that you have some kind of sense of how I'm using it. And, and hopefully I'll be giving you a few different definitions uh, throughout the evening as well. And I thought the best way to give some kind of definition of it would be through a poem. I think poems express something that, that a bland definition just can't. So I decided to share with you a, a very short poem by the Sufi poet Hafiz. And the name of the the poem is The Sun Never Says. He begins. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights the whole sky. I I feel like that's a beautiful description of love. This quality of love that doesn't have those strings attached to it, that doesn't have some kind of demand, not some kind of subtle or not so subtle demand of you owe me, or you have to be a certain way in order for me to love you. The sun doesn't do that to the earth, does it? And then a, a, a beautiful metaphor that we have of, of, of a love like that. It lights the whole sky. This is the quality of, of love that I feel like we need to bring into our practice that we need to cultivate. Or maybe more accurately, that we need to surrender ourselves to so that it can uh, infuse our practice. Something that we can get out of the way of so that it can enter into our practice more easily. I want to go a little bit farther with this definition by also sharing with you a story that I feel exemplifies this quality of love. You could say it's a a story about the external world that's rather dramatic. And my intent with sharing it with you is, is that I feel that this rather dramatic story about the external world is something that we can um, internalize internalize and and bring into relationship to sometimes the subtle and often undramatic aspects of our moment-to-moment experience. I, I feel like this uh, this story captures some of this quality that, that Hafiz is speaking about in his poem. And it's about the story of a village, which again strikes me. This is the, the story of um, the love that was expressed by a village in south-central France in 1942. Some of you might know this, this village, uh, Le Chabon-sur-Lignon. 
the, the village of Le Chabon, which and also some of the villages that were around this village. This village was um, predominantly uh, inhabited by the Huguenots. And again, you, you might remember the plight of the Huguenots in, in France. They were severely persecuted by the Catholics, actually massacred, and so went through a tremendous amount of suffering. And one of the striking things that I, I love about this village is, is it's, it's a real testimony of how suffering can be transformed into love. And in 1942, this village, along with some other villages around them, decided to engage in their spiritual practice, which was very simple, which was the engagement in loving. And the way they, they uh, engaged in that was actually to hide, to hide Jews from the Germans. Uh, it's said that, that uh, this village saved between 3,000 and 5,000 Jews as a result of the, the work that they did. And it was mostly uh, uh, Jews that were children, foreign-born, and not many uh, French Jews. And what they would do is they would bring them into their homes and they would live with the families in this village. And then when they found out that the Germans were coming, the Gestapo, they would, they would uh, tell them to flee into the forest and they would hide in the forests. And then once the coast was clear, they'd actually sing a song and the children would come back in. I want to give you one description of a of a of a Jewish woman who basically survived as a result of, of of their work. She said of the villagers, "Nobody asked who was Jewish and who was not. Nobody asked where you were from. Nobody asked who your father was or if you could pay. They just accepted each of us, taking us in with warmth, sheltering us often." these children without their parents, children who cried in the night from nightmares. They weren't judging them. They were loving them. They didn't say to them, you owe us. There were literally no strings attached to the love that they were expressing. And, and just right here, can you can you see just in this in this example of this story the quality of this love that that, that this is not a self centric love. The self centric love is around this quality of you owe me in some way. It's a, it's around of creating a world where where I am at the center and my life is at the center. And those demands that come with that. That wasn't happening in this village. And of course, what came with that also are, are, are some of the things that we uh, that come with when we engage in, in love is that it was a, den- a dangerous uh, affair that they were involved in. A number of them uh, were taken away into the concentration camps and eventually murdered. And at times it was unsuccessful what they were doing. But they were still committed to this love, to loving these children, sometimes taking them into Switzerland where they could be permanently safe. So tonight I want to I want to um, explore a little bit about how we can cultivate this quality of love within our practice, or to open up to this quality of love, so that we can move beyond this this limited self sense of self, or this self centric way of looking at the world.
before talking about how we engage in this quality of love, this love that never says you owe me, the, the love like the sun, or the love like this village, the village of La Chabon. I, I want to uh, first take some time to explore what I would call the opposite, what I would call self-centered love. So we're clear about that as well, and how it probably enters into our lives. So there's a, there's a clarity about that. And again, I want to share with you another story, another image, which I, I think is powerful, and it does a, a, a wonderful job of really giving an image of this quality of love. And this comes from uh, actually a platonic dialogue. Some of you, I don't know if any of you read the symposium. The symposium, uh, just to remind you, it was, um, it's about a bunch of guys, of course Socrates is in it, getting together and drinking a lot. And of course the topic that comes up when they're drinking a lot is love. And they're discussing and sharing their thoughts and their views about what love is. And they're, they're quite varied, a whole, whole variety of different views of love. And I think one of the first men to, to, to speak is Aristophanes. And just to remind you, Aristophanes was a, a playwright in, in Greek times, in, in ancient Greek times. But he was a comic playwright. And this is very important in terms of this image. And to remember, comedy, comedy is the basically, at least in, with, with you look at comedy in, in, in ancient Greece, the darkest view that you can have of what it is to be a human being. Aristophanes was excellent at this. So he shared with him, he said, love is like this. It's like, and, and, and then he tells the story. He says, once upon a time, we were, we were these creatures and we were these cartwheels. And there were these cartwheels of always these two people um, cartwheeling around together. And life was perfect and, and wonderful at that time. So sometimes there were two men connected together, sometimes two women, and at times a man and a woman connected together. That's what these cartwheels consisted of. But then, as you know, the gods, for some reason, got angry. doesn't seem like those Greek gods, they serious some serious anger issues there. <laughs> so, of course, through their anger, they, they, they divided all of these cartwheels, and scattered the people. And as a result, what was left was being a human being with this feeling that I am incomplete and I desperately need to find my other half out there. And so as a result, we wander around looking for that person that will complete us. It's not dark. <laughs> but you might have noticed this quality of love in your life that you've gone to maybe sometimes a relationship looking for somebody to complete you, to feel whole. And if you've done that, you know the suffering that arises from that. The thing is, is we, we, it's, it's not like uh, we do that with people. Sometimes we do that with our practice as well. We're looking for this sense of completion, which I, I want to get a little more in, in detail with, because this is this... this um, the self-centered love that I think we need to be aware of. But another way of seeing the manifestation of Aristophanes' story is this um, is actually what we were talking about in the Q&A, which I want to come back to. It's this theme, this feeling that so many of us feel of I'm not enough. Because that's the story of half the cartwheel. 
I'm not enough and I need to find someone or something or some spiritual practice that's going to complete me. Ever have this feeling? It's often why we come to a spiritual practice. So the sense of lack. How does this I'm, I'm not enough or I'm not good enough arise? I mean, so many different forms. I should be more mindful than this. I should be able to concentrate more than this. I really shouldn't be feeling this anger or this sadness or this confusion. Or all the sleepiness. It means It must mean that I'm not good in some way. Or the tightness in my body must mean that something's wrong with me. Or I'm just plain old not good enough. I'm not a good enough partner. I'm not a good enough um, practitioner. I'm not a good enough wife, husband. And then what gets intertwined with that is, if I practice, maybe I will become good enough. Maybe I will become a kinder person and then I will be good enough or more mindful and then I'll be good enough or more concentrated or more compassionate and then I'll be good enough. And I want to point out that this is tricky because it is true, especially with this this narrative that we get from early Buddhism, this narrative of, of cultivating these wholesome states of mind. This is, this is a wholesome thing to engage in, to cultivate uh, these qualities like mindfulness and concentration and, and, and compassion and, and kindness. And you've been hearing Eric and I speak about this again and again and again, of ways of cultivating these things. But what happens is that, that that this wholesome practice can get undermined when it gets um, when it when it starts to be in the service of this this project of I'm not good enough and this is how I'm going to become good enough. This is making sense. This is important because many times this is how we come to spiritual practice, and it's tricky because we are asking you to cultivate these things, and we're all at the same time we're asking you to let go of the story or this project of becoming good enough. Because that's endless. It's endless. I hope you see that by now. <laughs> Actually, maybe I'll start with this story. When I started my practice, it was about a year into getting ordained. This is not something that I realized very well. I was so gung-ho. And I, was, uh, I got ordained in the, in the Rinzai Zen tradition, which was the wrong tradition to get ordained in if you had an issue with not being good enough, which I seriously had a serious issue with this. Because it was about this koan practice, so it was very much about, um, and as Zen master, it was very much about driving somebody. If somebody was driven, he was going to make it that much worse. <laughs> so, you know, of course, this koan practice is, is kind of uh, manifesting these um, these paradoxical uh, Zen koans, these Zen questions. And... Um, and the Zen master I worked with, he was quite a rascal. He, he, knew, he knew how to uh, push your buttons. And uh, I was working so hard in my practice. I was just trying to be so passionate about it and so precise about it. And I remember this was down at the Zen Center in Los Angeles. And I'd finally got to a point, and I remember going into one of these um, interviews with him trying to manifest um, my understanding. And of course... 
him laughing in some kind of way and ringing his bell as I exited for the probably hundredth time of, of feeling confused and not getting anywhere. And uh, I really broke down. It really was so bone crushing eventually of trying to become, trying to become, become enlightened, become good enough. And in some ways, I'm so glad that I broke down then because it prevented me or allowed me to begin to get off this path, this path of trying to become somebody that I never was going to become, trying to become perfect. And and actually, then I started to get a sense more of surrendering, surrendering to the Dharma. And I think this is why surrendering is such an important aspect of this practice for me. But I, I really want to point out how ubiquitous this can be, this quality of I'm not good enough. So much of us have had an upbringing where we've had these these messages given to us, where love is combined, it's connected with what we accomplish or how we succeed in the world. It can be quite subtle. We can have, you know, parents or families that really love us, but it's always connected with what we do or what we succeed in. And then that sets up that we are lovable only because of what we do or, or what we've accomplished. I want to give you one example of this. This is a poem from um, Billy Collins, who, let me see if I can find it here. So I think he very humorously describes the demand that can be put upon us. Um, you might be able to relate to this. This is a bit extreme, but but good. The, the, the name of the poem is "My Favorite Seventeen-Year-Old High School Girl," and and the setting is if you imagine that this is a parent, either a mother or a father, speaking to their daughter, the seventeen-year-old. It has this flavor, so it begins. This parent talking to their daughter. Do you realize that if you had started building the Parthenon on the day you were born, you'd be all done in only one more year? (laughs) Of course. Of course. You couldn't have done that all alone. So never mind. You're fine just being yourself. (laughs) You're loved for just being you. But did you know that at your age, Judy Garland was pulling down $150,000 a picture? Joan of Arc was leading the French army to victory? And Blaise Pascal had cleaned up his room? No, wait, I mean he had invented the calculator. Of course, there will be time for all that later in your life, after you come out of your room and begin to blossom, or at least... Pick up all your socks. (laughs) For some reason, I keep remembering that Lady Jane Grey was Queen of England when she was only 15. (laughs) 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 But then she was beheaded, so never mind her as a role model. (laughs) A few centuries later, when he was your age, Franz, Franz Schubert, was doing the dishes for his family. But that didn't keep him from composing two symphonies, four operas, and two complete masses as a youngster. But of course, 
That was in Austria at the height of romantic lyricism, not here in the suburbs of Cleveland. (laughs) Frankly, who cares if Annie Oakley was a crack shot at 15 or if Maria Callas debuted as Tosca at 17? We think you're special just being you, playing with your food and staring into space. By the way, I lied about Schubert doing the dishes, but that doesn't mean he never helped out around the house. So, yeah, sometimes we can get these subtle messages. And what does that set up? That sets up this feeling of never enough. That you can never do enough. It's implicit in our economy. You can never make enough. In corporations, there's a demand upon them every quarter to be making more. Or in this country, have you noticed a lot of times the, the military can have so much power and so much money because there's a, a sense that we can never be safe enough. And we always need to be safer. This infuses our individual lives, but also it infuses our lives collectively as well. How do we begin to to address this? How do we begin to um, be free of this? I want to give a, a few specific ways and then I want to come back to um, also this, this quality of love because it's really going to be situated upon this love, the love like the sun or the love of that village, the village of Le Chabon. A few stories, to, though, on top of this to, to remember that I found helpful. One is about the, the author Joseph Heller. Jo- Joseph Heller was at a uh, cocktail party, supposedly, and one of his friends came up to him and said, Yo, Joe, do you see that hedge fund manager over there? And, and Joseph Heller said, Yeah. And Joseph's friend said, He made more money today than you have from all of your books. And Joseph Heller said, yeah, but I have one thing that he doesn't have. And his friend said, what's that? And Joseph said, enough. That's what we're really trying to sense into, that that there actually is enough. One way of getting a sense of this is noticing that this moment, this this moment right now is complete. There's nothing that we need to add or subtract. If you were to really let go of the stories just right now as I'm speaking to you, if you sense into right now, can you get a sense that actually this is enough? It really is. It can be that simple. And when you touch it, there can be such a relief from that. There can be such an impulse that we need to add something to this moment or take something away, but it's actually enough right now. 
Can you open up to that in your practice as you're being present? Being present with your experience, but also this quality of enough. I think this is one of the wonderful things about about uh, Zen, or the you could say the narrative that, that Zen Buddhism gives, gives us, is is a lot of times they talk about this quality of this moment is enough. That's why, especially in, in Soto Zen, which is another branch of Zen, they speak a lot about this dropping even uh, trying to achieve enlightenment, which I think can be a, a, a wonderful story that, that, that awakening is, is happening right now. Stop the chasing. The Zen master Dogen puts it really well. He's from the, the, the Soto uh, Zen school. He, he says, each moment is all being, is the entire world. Reflect now whether any being or any world is left out of the present moment. Can you get a sense of that? Each moment is, is, is there is an entirety there. How do I practice this? How, how do you practice this one on retreat? It's beginning to sense into that actually each moment is just as significant as the next moment. So this moment is just as significant as all the other moments. And this is important because what our minds does is we value one moment over another moment. Right? That moment at lunch when you're eating feels like it might be more significant than opening the door or putting on your socks. Sometimes that gets dismissed. Have you noticed that in your life? (coughs) But putting on your socks is just as significant as every other moment in in, in your day. This is a a wonderful way to to infuse this continuity of your practice when, when you're on retreat. We've been encouraging you to have this continuity of being present. What allows me to be present moment after moment when I'm standing up or sitting down, when I'm lying down to go to sleep, when I'm putting on my socks, is this quality that each moment is significant, is just as significant as, as every other moment. Can you invite that, that quality to be here in, in your practice? Which is very much infused with this, this moment is complete, this moment is enough. Do you see how we don't live in that so much and how relieving or liberating that could be if we move towards that? And I, I just maybe one other thing. When being present becomes at the forefront of our life, this is something that can begin to unfold or arise. Because if, if I have this feeling that that this, whatever this this is, is what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. This is what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. I'm supposed to be chasing this career or whatever it is. Then that's going to negate all these other moments, these mundane moments. Yet if, if what's at the forefront of my life is simply being present or being aware and accepting, then then this can begin to emerge. The, the, every moment is just as significant as the next. So I want to come back to this this quality of love because I think it's intertwined with with getting a sense this sense of enough. This this uh, this love uh, like the sun, the, this love like the village of uh, La Chabon. 
few years ago, I was leading a retreat in Flagstaff, and one of the participants on the retreat said the most striking and insightful thing. I think we were just talking about cultivating awareness or cultivating this quality of presence. And she said, you know, what I find is not not this this junction to remind myself to be present. All I need to do is remind myself to be kind or to accept, and then awareness follows right along. Which I thought was was really striking. That that what all we need to remember is is can we bring acceptance or kindness to this moment? And then what you might find is it's so easy to have this quality of really being aware of the details of the experience. What's it like to have that as the forerunner of your practice? A lot of times what, what, what becomes the forerunner is awareness or knowing. I invite you to switch it around. What would that be like? Is that something that's effective for you? And, and I feel like it can be so important because there can be such a, a the, the judgmental mind can be so, so strong in our lives. I just want to give an example of this, just to, to be clear about this. So here we are, we're sitting, and something like anxiety arises, or a physical pain, or an emotional pain arises. Maybe an emotional hurt, or the feeling of loneliness, or even the judgmental mind. Can we have this first impulse to simply accept it, to be with it, this quality of kindness? Just that simple quality and then the awareness of it. So if it's the, the feeling of loneliness, oh, it's accepting that and then feeling it, you know, as Eric was, was mentioning in terms of the wandering mind, feeling it in, in the body in terms of sensation. But also to, to be aware of the layers of that. So there's a physical pain or, or emotional pain, so being with that. And then it's also being with that aspect of our, of our um, experience that's saying, I'm going to be with it as long as it goes away soon. <laughs> Because a lot of times we can dismiss that and say, oh, this is the part that I shouldn't be accepting. Oh, but we can accept that. With that same quality of love, a welcoming attitude that we can actually open up a space for that. Not to believe it. So there's a difference between loving and believing. We can love an aspect of our experience, but that doesn't necessarily mean we need to believe it. Or when that judgmental mind comes up, that, that one of self-hatred, or what we're not doing in or, or that we're not good enough. Oh, and this too, there's space for this too. I can have this quality of love, love like the sun, where there can be a complete acceptance of it. A complete acceptance of it arising. But that doesn't mean I'm going to believe it, or I'm going to go down its story. So this is important, especially around judgment. I'll, I can cut the story and not believe it, but accept the sensations of it. Does this make sense? This is important, especially with judgment. We're not, we don't want to be fueling the story, but there can still be this quality of acceptance. I actually don't need to push it away. Accepting it and not believing it. And even when, when a, a physical pain or emotional pain gets to be too much, that's another opportunity to practice kindness. Oh, wow, here's a, a time where there can be this quality of kindness. I need to get up. I need to sit less. I need to have some space around this. I can actually express kindness in that way too, of, of moving away from it for a little while. 
or you could have this this um, quality towards your meditation practice to have a loving quality towards your practice, not to put a demand upon your meditation practice. I'm meditating so that this will go away. I'm meditating so I will gain this. And of course, things we do let go of things. We do have a more open heart from this practice. But what would it be like not to have that demand upon our practice, but to simply be with what's arising? spend a little more time going a little bit more in detail about how this quality of love that I've just been describing, that I've been inviting you to to have more of in your meditation practice, does not, um, it actually doesn't lie within the domain of what I'd call um, uh, this limited sense of self. So I want to define that a little bit more clearly and then to give some examples of this. When I say our sense of self, I mean this, it's, it's almost more of a process or an activity. It's the activity that you probably notice your mind doing of identifying with certain aspects of experience. So the five, you could say, classic areas that the Buddha spoke about that we identified with, which is, um, th- that I just want to quickly go through, so I, hopefully you can relate to these, these areas of identifying with them. This is what we do as human beings. Is The first one is the body. Whose body is this? This is my body. And when this body hurts, who suffers? I suffer. That's, that's been my experience around this body. It's pretty obvious, right? When if you, don't bring your meditation mind to this. But when you just get this general sense, we identify with the body. We say, this is my body. There's a sense of, this is who I am. This isn't you, this is me. I'm the one with the balding head. That's me. And then uh, uh, there's this other realm, and, and the way I usually uh, describe it is, is in terms of likes and dislikes. Who who am I? I well, the way who who I am is um, I like chocolate ice cream, and I don't like raisins in my oatmeal. That's who I am. If you were to ask me, that's who I am. Who who is it that likes chocolate ice cream and doesn't like raisins in their oatmeal? That's me. Can you relate to this? This is how we identify ourselves. We identify with these likes and dislikes that arise and pass away. Or it gets more subtle than that. It's in terms of our perceptions. So who who names that that's an aspen tree out there? I'm the one that knows, that, that sees that that's an aspen tree. I name it to be that way. I'm the one that perceives the world and, and puts these small labels on the things that I see. I really have a, a distinct feeling that's that's who I am. I'm the one who's doing that. Or more subtle, who is who is the the one that um, picks up the pen? I am the one that puts forth the intention to pick up the pen. I am the one that engages in volition. I'm the one that walks to the to the to the um, dining hall. 
Who makes this body walk to the dining hall? I'm the one that does that. I engage in that. Again, can you relate to that? That's how we define ourselves, this, this sense of agency. And then the most subtle, which can be tricky, is who is aware? I am aware. I'm the one that's aware. So what the mind is doing is it's actually taking aspects of experience and identifying with it. It's saying, this is who I am. And there's many other categories or many other ways of kind of dividing up the, up, up, up the pie. What's important is to see this process of saying, this is me in some manner. And what we can start to do, though, through this practice, and, and this is where this breaking through the sense of self can actually lead to um, more of the, a, a quality of what I'd call love. And I want to give an example of this. This is a, a, a more, it's a tricky example because it's even a more subtle sense of self. And this is how we uh, not only name things as me or mine, but we somehow create the world in a way through uh, concepts. And, and so, uh, so I'm broadening our sense of self in terms of the world that we create. In some ways, what we do with the sense of self is we also create this world out there. And we think that it's really real. One example of this. Uh, last weekend, actually, this is, yeah, last Saturday, we were doing a mindful hike in, in Flagstaff, and there was uh, an individual on the mindful hike who, she's an ecologist, she's a botanist, so when she goes out hiking, she's a good one too, so when she goes out hiking, she knows the name of all of the plants, and not only, and of course, the Latin names and the common names, but also she can look at the landscape and see why they're growing on this hill slope or next to this tree and how they're clumped together here and there. And when she goes out on a hike, this just kind of this this world pops up for her. This is the world that she's been conditioned to create as this world, which is really a world still around a self. And one caveat about this, there's, I, I want to point out there's nothing wrong with that world. Concepts are really important in our lives. The, the thing is, is when our lives are absolutely dictated by that, it can be so limiting. And, and, and I, I think you'll see how limiting it is just in this example. And then she said when she just simply dropped into mindfulness, that world, she could um, momentarily break through that world and actually touch the, her direct experience of the forest. And it was this, this really this, this powerful experience of being intimate, this, this, this pure intimacy with the forest around her. And she said it was almost like she could feel this visceral tightening when the mind was doing this and this, this complete expansion into intimacy when, when she could let go of that. She was coming into intimacy, into love, when she was able to move into that space. This, this is moving into love when we dissolve this limited self, sense of self, this limited world of description that we live in. Actually, uh, a poem by Meister Eckhart, who was a Christian mystic, which, which I think goes with this. I just want to give a, a couple lines from this. I, just, I, I love the first line. They are always kissing they can't control themselves. Isn't that a great first line? I just want to say that. <laughs> they are always kissing. They can't control themselves. 
God ripened me, so I see it as true. All objects in existence are wildly in love. Can you drop these concepts, even if it's for a moment, to see that? And what what we're doing in this practice is just that. We're asking you to to touch your direct experience. When, When you simply feel the hands touching each other together and to notice that the concept hand is different than just that, that's breaking through that conceptual world. It doesn't always have to feel dramatic, but it can be profound when we allow the mind to do that again and again and again. And I want to... I have a minute. <laughs> we'll give you more. Thank you. May time expand. <laughs> I, because I, I want to name just one other piece, which I think is important, especially, and I feel such an urge, especially in this environment, because there's such an opportunity with this environment to start to get a taste of that. And that's to also break down even these subtle concepts of here I am and there's the world out there. This is such a, a, a subtle concept that we assume is true. We assume is really real. And, and one of the, the, the freedoms that arises from this practice the Buddha give, uh, gave us is to even to, to break through that. And, uh, and as a way of um, describing this, 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 um, this movement of, of going beyond this limited self, sense of self into a, a greater sense of love, I, I want to share with you just some, uh, some comments by uh, Sri Nisargadatta. Nisargadatta was a um, he was an Indian practitioner. And basically, he, he was a very simple man. He 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 ran a convenience store. He had one of those little shops in India. You know those beadies, those Indian cigarettes that they sell. I don't know if anybody's been to India. These small cigarettes. He was it's mostly what he sold. So he was just a really simple guy. And basically, his guru had told him to do this certain practice. He did it, and he had this profound awakening. And uh, he explains some of what he's come to, and and. And so somebody's asking him a question, and let me share with you the question and his answer. The questioner says, when you say clear and empty, what do you mean? I mean, and this is what Nisargadatta says, he says, I mean free of all contents. To myself, I am neither perceivable nor conceivable. There is nothing I can point out and say, this is what I am. You identify yourself with everything so easily. I find it impossible. The feeling I am that I am not this or that, nor anything is mine, is so strong in me. Nor anything is mine is so strong in me that as soon as a thing or a thought appears, there comes at once the sense: this I am not. Pretty profound, right? Real clarity about being free of, of this identification process. And then he goes on about this, because the questioner says, I'm finding this really difficult to grasp what you're saying. I mean, are you saying you're not no, not the subject nor the object in experience? What's up with this? And, and Nisargadatta gives this wonderful example. He says, look, my thumb touches my forefinger, both touched and are touched. When my attention is on the thumb, the thumb is the feeler and the forefinger is the self. But if I shift the focus to the, to the other one of attention and the relationship is reversed, 
I find that somehow by shifting the focus of attention, I become the very thing I look at and experience, the kind of consciousness it has. I become the inner witness of the thing. I call this capacity of entering other focal points of consciousness love. You may give it any name you like. Love says I'm everything. Wisdom says I'm nothing. Between the two, my life flows. So you hear this other definition of of love, where duality, in a sense, collapses. The sense that here I am in the world is out there. And, and, And I want to invite you, ways that you can get begin to contact this, and, and Eric might be speaking about this more in a few days, is it's beginning to question the location of awareness. Because there can be so much the sense that awareness resides here and that it emanates out and it's aware of the world. And with this example, he's asking us to play around with this in, in terms of subject and object. And, and so I want to share with you a few things you want uh, you might want to play around with this that, that fits into this. As the Zen master used to say that I used to practice with the way he described it, he says, yeah, you have this sense that you see the flower, but actually the flower is seeing you. Which I think can be a good gateway. And one way to get a sense of this out here is, is sometimes just walking around and getting a sense as if the environment is seeing you. Because what that can do is it can shake up the sense of where, where awareness is coming from with this kind of open this open sense, doing walking meditation, ah, and being seen by the environment. What happens to that? Does that shake up the location of where awareness is? Or another thing that, um, actually, we is our homework for our study group, which is, uh, in Flagstaff, which is this, uh, it comes from the Thai forest tradition, which is this sense of when you're walking, you'll notice when you're walking, there's a sense that here's my body and it feels like it's moving. But you can especially do this, this in this environment. But the quality of awareness might not have the sense that here it is in my body and it's moving. It might not have this feeling sense that it's moving. It watches and it knows the quality of moving, but it itself does not move. It's not tainted by moving. Sometimes that can switch around or shake up the, these beliefs that we have about where, where awareness resides. And again, this can lead to this deeper sense of love. And, and, and I want to be really clear, just one caveat about this. It's really important that you're not looking for awareness. Because if you look for it, you're never going to find it. So it's not this thing of finding it. It's, it's, it's getting a sense of it in this way of that it doesn't have a location. So may our practice of resting in these qualities of love lead to the liberation of all beings. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.